Well, I think if you've got your booklets, there's apparently only one page for notes this morning, so I'll endeavour not to say very much that's interesting. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I hope what we've seen across the, uh, the weekend is that union with Christ is really the answer to many of the big questions uh, in the Christian life. I, I don't know whether you've ever thought about it. How is it that somebody's death and resurrection 2,000 years ago impacts me today? I mean, occasionally when I've been explaining the gospel, I've always wrestled with, is that going to sound absurd? Something that happened 2,000 years ago in history now changes me completely. Actually, it's only if I'm united with Jesus that makes sense. It's only if I'm united with this man who died and rose 2,000 years ago that change can be worked in my life and my eternity today. How is it that somebody's death 2,000 years ago benefits me today? Only through union with Christ. How should I think about the Christian life? That's what we started with on Friday night. I hope we'll answer that question now. The Christian life is living out my union with Jesus, my Lord. The Christian life, if you like, is lived inside out. It's a transformation that's happened within us that we live out. That's the Christian life. Why did Jesus have to leave? Oh, he left so that the Spirit would come who would unite me with the Lord Jesus, so that he would be in me and I would be in him. How can I be fruitful? How can I produce fruit in my life to the glory of God? I guess it's a question many of us ask. We, we want to bring glory to God. We want to live lives that please him. How can I do it? Well, as I remain in Jesus and his words remain in me. Here's the last question. I think it's on the screen behind me. Here's the last question I want us to think about this morning. Why isn't the Christian message dangerous? Why isn't the Christian message dangerous? Here's one of those profound things you can write down. Romans 6 comes after Romans 5. That's to say, Romans 6 comes after the conclusion of Paul's argument in Romans chapters 1 to 5, where he's essentially been addressing this question, how are we made righteous? How are we justified? How are we acquitted before God? And Paul has insisted we're justified by faith in Christ. Not by the law, not by keeping the Ten Commandments, not by loving God and loving our neighbour, not by human achievement, not by anything we do. We're accepted by God on the basis of receiving something, receiving the gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for our sin at the cross. It's a gift. You can't earn it. But I really remember a conversation with a friend of mine when we were at university together. Uh, he wasn't a Christian, and I, he gave me the opportunity to explain what Christians believed. And he said, that, that's just dangerous, isn't it? You know, why would anybody want to be good? You know, if, you, if you don't get to heaven by being good, simply by <laughs> receiving a gift, well, surely everybody's going to go off and be bad, aren't they? Trust Jesus and it's all Okay. You can understand the question, can't you? You can understand why somebody might ask that. The same thought actually strikes a Christian in a slightly different way. It's a moment of temptation. Something comes in, we're attracted to it, we know it's wrong. And Satan fills our minds with this thought. Go on. After all, it's not going to damage your salvation. You can do it, then you can ask for forgiveness. It's okay, isn't it? Am I the only one who's faced that thought at a moment of temptation? Or in the language of Romans, if I sin more, 
Doesn't that just mean there's more grace? There's more forgiveness? And after all, grace and forgiveness is a good thing. So why not just sin more and receive more grace? Those questions will strike us in different ways. It might be the question of the non-Christian. It might be the thought in our head in the midst of temptation. And that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. Because I think Christians have responded to it in different ways. I think the main way Christians respond to it is this. Well, we shouldn't live as we like because we're grateful. Yeah, we're grateful for what Jesus did. And so we want to live out of gratitude. And that's not bad. But I don't think it's the main way the Bible answers the question. Actually, the main way the Bible answers the question we see in Romans 6, 1 to 14. Basically, Romans 6 and 7 is Paul dealing with a load of questions that have been set up in Romans 1 to 5. He set up this idea that we're justified by faith, by trusting in the Lord Jesus. And then he deals with the questions that his readers would have in chapters 6 and 7. And we're just going to look at the first question. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Do we just sin lots because, hey, we'll be forgiven anyway? And Paul says, no. A bit strong, actually. By no means. Not at all. Get rid of that idea. The logic of my non-Christian friend, the logic Satan puts in our minds, that logic is wrong. Grace is not intended to lead to more sin. Because we are to think differently about who we are. We think that we've died to sin and we're living a new life. Because what Paul insists is that the Christian isn't just somebody whose status has been changed. It's not just that we've moved from being guilty to being acquitted. No, our whole identity, our whole person has been changed. That's what he's going to insist on in Romans chapter 6. Can I be blunt? Actually, if you don't get Romans 6, you've probably not really grasped what it is to live as a Christian. It is that important because we'll see what the Christian life looks like. And you won't be surprised, it'll be slightly strange to change theme for the last session, you won't be surprised to learn that Paul says the reason we live differently, the reason our very person has been changed is because we're united with Jesus Christ. And so time and again, I don't know whether you picked it up as Catherine read it, This passage uses the language of being in Christ or with Christ. Verse 3, we're baptised into Christ Jesus. Verse 4, we're buried with Christ Jesus. Verse 5, we're united with him in his death. We will be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, we've died with Christ. Verse 11, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again and again, with into, in Christ. I'm a whole new person. I am joined to him. I must not think of Jesus and me as two separate people. We're locked together. And the main image that uh, Paul uses in this passage is the image of baptism. Just in passing, both the Lord's Supper and baptism use language of union. So 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Lord's Supper, will talk about us participating in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's union language. Indeed, even actually the act of taking the bread and the wine speaks, doesn't it, of union. Symbolically, as I take that bread into me, symbolising the body of Christ, it symbolises the union that we have with him. 
And so too, when we come to baptism, we see that baptism is intended to be an image of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I should mention this just in passing. Martin Lloyd-Jones happens to think Paul is talking about spirit baptism here, but I have to admit, I'm not entirely convinced by that. Because it seems to me the language of death and resurrection is actually speaking of the symbolism of water baptism, of what happens after somebody becomes a Christian. And it's worth uh, noting, in some ways Paul here almost uses baptism and conversion almost interchangeably. So actually it's as we're converted, as we're included in Christ, to use the language of yesterday, that we're joined to him. But particularly in New Testament times, baptism and conversion happen so close to one another that if you like, as Paul sees somebody baptised, oh, they've just been converted. And so, in a sense, he uses all those language almost interchangeably. When you're converted, symbolised in baptism, you're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So let's explore that. What I've got this morning are two truths and two challenges. Two truths about being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And then by the time we get to verse 11, we'll see the challenge. What difference should that make? to the way in which I think. So, let's look firstly at being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now, as you work through particularly verses 3 to 10, what you'll see is that the death and resurrection themes are all fairly intertwined. And so to make it slightly easier for you, and I have to confess to make it slightly easier for me, I've separated them out and put them in order. So firstly, we've died to sin with Christ. We've died to sin with Christ. Now if you notice, that's a theme that comes up in pretty much every verse. So again, verse 3, we're baptised <coughs> into his death. We're buried with him through baptism into death, verse 4. We're united with him in his death, verse 5. Our old self has been crucified with him, verse 6. We've died with Christ, verse 8. I think that's important. Occasionally I wonder whether sometimes the way we present the gospel sounds a bit like this. You've got your life, but you need a bit of spirituality, and so you kind of add Jesus on the end as your sort of spiritual bit of your life. And Paul is saying, no, you really can't think like that. In a sense, to be converted, symbolised in your baptism, is to die. One person writing on this says, effectively Paul is saying your baptism is your funeral. There's a death being worked out, a death to an old way of life, a death to the sin of the old life. That's to say there is a radical discontinuity. It's not that my life continues and I add Jesus. No, my life stops and starts again. And Paul says the purpose of this is clear. The purpose, verse uh, 6, our old self was crucified and so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul is saying the purpose of being united with Jesus in, his, in baptism is that we're no longer slaves to sin. You see, in our lives, before we come to the Lord Jesus, before we're joined to him, sin is effectively the master. That's to say sin orders us around. It tells us what to do. And just as an ancient slave couldn't escape from its master, so actually on our own, we can't escape from sin. We can't stop disobeying God. 
But Paul says, you've died to that old life. It isn't who you are anymore. You're free. You're no longer a slave. That life has gone. That's why in the booklet I've called this last session Freedom. Partly it was a third F. But actually it's also because Paul is saying that's the life we have now. We've died to the slavery of sin. We're set free in our union with Jesus. And that's not because of willpower. No, we're set free because we've died with Christ. Have a look at verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, the end of Romans 5 says, and it uses similar language of union, is that all human beings were united with Adam. And because we're united with Adam, we're under the reign of sin and death that Adam brought into the world. But when Jesus comes, he shatters the reign of sin. He defeats sin at the cross. By dying for, for people for the, the penalty of sin, by dying and breaking the curse, he defeats the power of sin. He triumphs over sin at the cross. And actually because sin leads to death at the cross, Jesus triumphs over both sin by paying the penalty for it and death which is the result of sin. And Paul is saying, we're joined to that. We're united with him in that. Union with Christ means this. What has happened to Jesus has happened to me. So if Jesus has died to the power of sin, I, in union with him, have died to the power of sin. And because I've died to sin, death no longer has control over me either. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. And I am united with him so that I may no longer be a slave to sin. Imagine a baptism for a moment. Imagine it in slow motion. Somebody is taken down into the water and you press pause at that point. Not in real life, that would be distressing, but, but just in the symbol for a moment. What should the person be thinking at that point? They're thinking, I've died with Christ. I've died with him. And because I've died with him, I've died to my old way of life. And I've died to the reign of sin. That's what they're thinking. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Yeah, maybe it would be good for us as we perhaps relive our baptisms this morning to think that's what happened. As I was united with Jesus, I died to the reign of sin. I'm not its slave anymore. It no longer has control over me. But let's press the pause button again and move it forward because let's see the second point. We have new life with Christ. We've died to sin with Christ. We have new life with Christ. You see, in Jesus' story, of course, the cross, his death leads to his resurrection. And because we're joined to him, that's our story too. We've died to an old way of life, but that is followed by resurrection. And so you see again that theme throughout this section. Verse 4. We were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll also certainly be united with him in his res resurrection. If we died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you see? We've died with him and we're raised with him. 
Now, in part, that's a promise for the future. At verse 5, we will be united with him in his resurrection. We will be like him. We'll have that glorious new body. Quite looking forward to it. But it's not just that. It's also a present reality. Because we noticed, didn't we, that purpose clause in verse 6 on the death. We die with him so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Well, actually, there's a purpose clause here as well in verse 4. We're raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Why? So that we too may live a new life. The purpose of our union with Jesus is that we're no longer slaves to sin and that we might live a new life. That's what it's for. So let's go back to that visual aid of baptism. Somebody comes up out of the water and before a towel is shoved in their face, they're thinking this, I'm alive. Which if I've baptised them, it's probably a relief. I'm alive. But more to the point, I'm alive with Jesus. I have a whole new life with him. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. That's the Christian life. United with Jesus in his death and resurrection, so I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm living a new life with Jesus. You see why it's important that we grasp this? It's so easy, I think, to settle just for a true but simple thought as to what happened at Easter. The cross means, praise God, I'm forgiven. And it means, praise God, death is defeated. But it's also deeper and much richer than that. Because of my union with Christ. It means what's happened to him has happened to me. It means so much my present identity as to who I am. I've died with him, so I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm risen with him, so I'm living a new life with Christ. That's why, actually, it doesn't fit for a Christian to sin. A Christian sinning is a bit like a right-handed person trying to write with his left hand. It's not natural. It feels awkward because it's not who we are anymore. It's actually us working against our natural identity. So let me turn to a couple of challenges. What are the implications? And in some ways, these would be the sort of summary implications of everything that we've looked at across the weekend. Here's the first. Get this into your mind. Get this into your mind. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I guess in many ways, that's a great summary of all that we've seen from Romans 6. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. But notice the command, count yourselves. Count yourself. It's not make yourself. I laboured that point a bit yesterday. It's not that we have to get ourselves in union with Christ. It is count yourself. That's to say, this is the way you're to think about yourself now. Who am I? How am I to think about myself and to think of myself as somebody who is dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus? Tomorrow morning, as you face, sorry to break it to you, all the realities of a Monday morning. Today's a day where I'm dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Same true Tuesday morning. Somebody who's dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we need to hold on to that. Paul Tripp, who's done a fair amount of Christian counselling, says that, that 
The main challenge he faces with people is what he calls identity amnesia. That's to say they forget who they are. They forget their identity in Christ. They forget that sense that they're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So their heads are bowed down. We need to remember that's Paul's command. Count yourself. This is how you're to think about yourself from now. And it matters because Paul will say in verses 12 onwards that though we're dead to sin, that doesn't mean temptation doesn't happen. There is still the ongoing experience that the Christian will have to face of battling with sin. And Paul says if we're going to fight that, the first thing we need is to think clearly. Now can I say one way in which, particularly I guess in our kinds of circles, we're tempted to get this wrong and to harm ourselves, is actually to think of ourselves purely as miserable sinners. I think that's quite common actually. And at one level, of course, left to ourselves without Christ, we are miserable sinners. Of course, to our shame, we still fall into sin, and we need to recognise that. But can you see from Romans 6 why it's a problem simply to think of yourselves as a miserable sinner? Because Christ has broken that. He's changed that. That's not the essence of who I am anymore. I'm somebody dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it matters because, frankly, if I think of myself purely as a miserable sinner, how will I live? I'll sin. Whereas if I think of myself as somebody who's dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, there's a new power there. A new power to live the kind of life that I'm supposed to live. And so, imagine the situation. Think of yourself along the lines of verse 11 as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Imagine that moment, temptation comes knocking at the door. You don't know what it is, that anger that burns, that sexual temptation. Whatever it is, it comes knocking at the door. What do you say to it? Go away. You don't reign over me anymore. You've not got the right to tell me how to live anymore. You don't own me anymore. Go away. Isn't that what you say? If you think you're dead to sin and alive to God... You've not got the right to order me around anymore. I don't have to follow your urgings. I'm a new person now. I'm joined to Christ. Can I be honest? I know for myself, my ability to fight temptation is almost proportional to how clear my grasp of this truth is. If I forget it, I'll sin. If I actually consciously remembering this is who I am and it's great, then I'll have the power to fight temptation. That's why Paul develops it as he does. Count yourself. Get it into your mind. This is how you're to think about yourself. Dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then secondly, live it out. See what Paul says, verse 12. Therefore, off the back of all of this, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. I guess students will be arriving at the, uh, the two universities in Oxford in the next few weeks. Imagine um, sort of the first day at an Oxford college and somebody turns up. They failed all their A-levels. They were never offered a place in the, in, in the first place. But they wander up to the lodge, can I have a key? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And, and they wander in. Of course, soon the message gets around on Facebook. This college, you can just turn up. You don't have to actually have a right to be there. You can just turn up and it'll be fine. It's not going to work very long, is it? 
it's going to be that sense that they're going to run out of space and it will all go wrong. Actually, it doesn't work if you let somebody in who's got no right to be there. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies because it's not got a right to be there anymore. It's not who you are anymore. It's no right. Don't offer parts of your body. Uh, don't let sin reign in your mortal body because you're united with Christ. You've died to sin. Sin hasn't got a right to reign over you anymore. Instead, verse 13, don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Use every part of your body as one who's dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's sometimes worth thinking around, actually, about the different parts of our body. Our speech, our tongues. We don't want to offer our tongues to sin. We want to offer our tongues to righteousness, being truthful, being positive, using them to encourage people. It affects our eyes what we're going to let ourselves look at. We don't want to look at things which enable sin to reign, that are, are different from who we are. No, we're going to fix our eyes on that which is good. It's going to affect our hearts, what we treasure, the ambitions we have. We're not going to offer those to sin. We're going to offer those to God. We're going to offer those to righteousness. With every part of our body, we live out who we are. We live out our union with Christ. Why? Because sin shall not be your master, verse 14. Because you're not under law, but under grace. Do you remember how we started? That question, surely the Christian message is dangerous. All this grace stuff is actually just going to mean that you sin lots. Paul says it's the other way around. Actually, if you spend your life trying to keep the law, you will sin lots. Because you've got no power. No power in the law to change you. But by contrast, if you live under that grace, that grace that gives us the Lord Jesus and unites us with him, then there's the power to live differently. Then there's the power where sin is not our master because we're in vital union with him and we've died to sin and we're alive to him. We're living a new life now. Get it into your minds, Paul says, and then live it out practically. Let me as a close just remind you of some of the phrases that we've looked at this weekend can Christ be rich and I poor Christ in you the hope of glory you have been given fullness in Christ you're hidden with Christ set your heart on things above where Christ is not on earthly things I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains in me, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So at the beginning, that main by and large was to encourage us. It would be great if we went from here thinking, I'm united with Jesus, and that is awesome. And I want to live that out.